Welcome to Rough Drafts, how God writes his love in our stories, a podcast that explores the faith journeys of our friends and neighbors in Burns, Tennessee. Everyone has a story to tell. And in this podcast, we'll hear powerful and inspiring stories of how God works in the ordinary lives of people like you and me. Our stories are unfinished and perfectly imperfect. They're just rough drafts, a glimpse of what is to come because God is still at work, writing plot twists, introducing new characters, and bringing good even from the most challenging circumstances. Join us as we see what God is up to in our stories. Here's your host, Matthew Hyatt. Welcome to this week's episode of The Rough Drafts, How God Writes His Love in Our Story. Each week we get to hear from somebody different, and different is this week's. From the first time I met today's guest, I knew I was going to like him. Uh, he's been part of our small group. Uh, every time he offers a communion devotional or um, a prayer in church, I have people lined up to thank me for asking him to do it. Um, and that's a rare blessing and a rare gift in church. But what I really like about uh, today's guest is it is very obviously not a performance. Uh, it's a relationship with God that he shares with others. So I'm not going to say anything more about him because he is bigger than me. And I try not to irritate people that are bigger than me. That's one of my rules for life. Uh, but today's guest is Greer Henson. Greer, thanks for coming. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate you. Are you feeling good about this? I am. All right. Are we nervous? A little bit. Everyone is. Yeah. Um, I don't know why sharing our stories has become such a rare thing. Right. But we're we're fixing that right here, right now. So, Greer, what's your God story? Well, you know, uh, my story is probably not too dissimilar from a lot of folks in that uh I grew up in, a, in an excellent family, had a mother and father that were nurturing, um, including spiritually. I, I'm one of five kids, still have all my siblings, and so I'm very fortunate in that way. And and I grew up around a lot of people that, that really contributed to my spiritual growth and gave me a foundation because I think had I not had a foundation to come back to, uh, the story would be a lot different. Um, I'm 56 now, so um, I've been walking with the Lord for 43 years, and, and I'll tell you this much, Matthew. Uh, he's always walked with me, but I, I've not always walked with him. And uh, despite my best efforts, um, that old song, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, mm-hmm. there's a verse in that song that says, Prone to wander from thee prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. And I think all along the way, God has sealed my heart and it gave me a chance to come back. And, um, you know, when you approached me about this, uh, I told you that I had, I had been praying for an opportunity and maybe just a forum to tell a story. Yeah. Um, I I don't know that I could do it from the pulpit. I, I don't know that I could summon the courage. So maybe sitting behind a microphone and people not seeing me is some comfort. Uh, and I think I told you too, with two services, I know I couldn't tell the story twice. Yeah. So um, in saying that, the, the story I'm telling, it, it doesn't make me a hero or a victim. I think it's just the human condition. And, and I think it's something that probably most people will experience whether or not they deal with it is a different matter. And I, I think I shared with you, it's something I don't think I've ever heard uh, spoken about in a pulpit, and that's Christians who deal with mental health struggles. 
I don't know that I know all the reasons behind that. And uh, even when in talking with other people, you know, I've had people share with me that they've had people say things like, you know, I don't understand how a Christian could suffer from depression. That um, some would even say that that's a sin. Some might say that it's just a lack of faith. I ask those people, have they ever read the Bible? I mean, have they yeah. ever met Elijah? Right. Have they ever met Jesus who says, my soul is exceedingly troubled? Right. Like, right. And uh, it, it's not something that I dealt with the majority of my life. Um, but but I found myself in a situation, and, and I'll tell you, this is really where my trepidation comes in um, telling the story because... You know, I have to be honest and be vulnerable to say that the vast majority of my life, um, I was always able to handle anything that had come my way. But but I found myself at a point um, about eight years ago, 2015, where um, I was broken in a lot of ways. Uh, I had I had been through a lot of things. Some were outside of my control uh, a few years earlier. Both my parents had died three months apart, which was extremely difficult. Um, following that, I had gone through, uh, recently, prior to that, had gone through a divorce. Had to, had to sell my home that we lived in almost 20 years. My oldest daughter went away to college, and my youngest daughter lived with me part of the time. So that's like five massive life changes it's just a, it was a lot griefs. you know but here's the thing and that's why it doesn't make me a hero or a victim sometimes it's just life yeah but i will say in the midst of a lot of those things that were out of my control there were things that were within my control and matthew i you know there were times i made uh sinful selfish decisions that affected me and the people around me um also probably had gotten to a point where my self-reliance and arrogance caught up with me, and I found myself powerless to improve my condition. Uh, I can remember there were a few seminal events that happened where I, I really knew that I was not right, to, for lack of a better term. Uh, I traveled all the time, and I had a company vehicle, and I had to stop and get gas either every day or every other day. And I used a, a corporate credit card, a gas card that had a pin. And I remember one day standing at a gas pump and I didn't know what that pin was. My mind was so distracted and, and just going in every direction. And I remember I had to use my debit card because I couldn't figure out how to use a company card that I'd used every day. Um, suffered from insomnia. Uh, but the biggest thing was, and I, I don't know any other way to describe this, my, my brain, it felt like my mind was on a hamster wheel and it never turned off, not during the day, not at night, not ever. No relief. No relief. And peace and peace of mind had fled from me. And I really didn't know what to do. And um, so I, I drove myself to the emergency room and was admitted and asked for a psychiatric evaluation. Well, I did not know um, I was not suicidal or homicidal, and so I didn't qualify. Yeah. 
for a psychiatric evaluation. They basically say good luck. And I said, what did I do? What do I do? And they said, well, we can we can refer you to a psychiatrist, but based on what we see, it may be several weeks before you can be seen. And I said, I, I don't have several weeks. Yeah. And I said, I don't have any other options. She said, oh, you have another option. She said, you can admit yourself to a psychiatric hospital. She said, but if you do that, that's a 72-hour hold. And I really did not grasp exactly what that meant, but um, I called a friend of mine, Jeff, and I said, hey, I'm not right, and I need help today. Would you drive me to Franklin? And so he drove me to Rolling Hills Hospital, and I just walked in off the street, and there was somebody there, and I said, I, I would like to be evaluated to see if I can be admitted and so an admissions counselor came and met with me and, and got some history and did some things. She said, we can admit you. She said, but you'll, you'll be here 72 hours. And what that really means is this. When you walk through the door, it doesn't just close behind you. It locks behind you. You hand them your keys and your wallet and your phone, and they lock those up. You take off your shoes because they have shoestrings and somebody could harm themselves. And you're just, I was just immersed into a world I, I was not prepared for in that I was in a psychiatric hospital with people that were schizophrenic, psychotic, bipolar. Many, many, many of them were also dealing with addiction and multiple other issues. And so I, I went from being overwhelmed to being overwhelmed. I'd say. And Matthew, it's the only time in my life that honestly I had no freedom. I, I, I voluntarily gave it up and I needed to, but I, I, you know, talking about that and being in that situation are two entirely different things. So uh, I found out once I got there that I could not meet with a psychiatrist until the next day. And so that night as we approached the evening, they showed me where my room would be. They introduced me uh, to my roommate, and uh, my roommate was a really interesting person, and I believe firmly that God placed him in my path. He was a little older than me. He was a retired executive. He'd been a bank executive, and I'm sitting there thinking, why is this guy here? He, he seems like he's got it all together. Well, he had received um, a, a, a health diagnosis where he thought he was going to go have surgery, and he was told that surgery was not an option and that his his uh, condition would deteriorate until he was paralyzed. And he tried to take his life. And he was also a believer. So we go to our room that night, and I did not know this, but every 15 minutes somebody came with a flashlight and they did a wellness check to make sure that nobody had harmed themselves. And Matthew, I prayed every 15 minutes, God, get me out of this. Now, I can tell you what I thought I heard at the time, and that was deafening silence. I did not think God was there. And I did it all that night. So if I did some simple math, 32 times, I prayed, God, get me out of this. And the next day I met with a psychiatrist and he went through all these things you know, that I'd gone through, and he said, what do you think's wrong with you? 
I said, I don't know. I said, I think I'm a little bit depressed, but I think I have an anxiety disorder. He said, yeah, I can see that. He said, oh, you're wrong. He said, you have a little bit of anxiety and you have major depressive disorder. And he laid out what our treatment regimen would look like for that. And he said, I'll tell you something. He said, you're not in the right place. He said, you don't need to be in an inpatient facility. He said, but I also recognize, and, and this is still, I think, the case today, there are no options for acute psychiatric care. None. If you are not homicidal or suicidal, nobody's going to see you immediately. So you're then put into an outpatient scenario where it may take weeks before you're even diagnosed and addressed. So there's that gap in the middle where I found myself. He said, so you're in the wrong place. He said, um, but I need you to stay. I need you to stay the 72 hours. I said, I don't want to stay. He said, I wouldn't want to stay either. He said, but you need to stay. He said, because if you leave, then in your record, you're going to have that you left a psychiatric facility against medical advice, and you may never overcome that. Oh, wow. And so I stayed. And so that night again, 32 times, I prayed to God, get me out of this. And I started learning that there is no way out. There is only a way through it. And so I stayed my 72 hours. And I'd like to say I only prayed that prayer 64 times, but I prayed it all day long and every night because I didn't understand. And... um the psychiatrist discharged me to an outpatient, intensive outpatient therapy, which was outpatient therapy every day, most of the day, for a month. Wow. And so I called my friend Jeff, and he came back and picked me up and took me home. And then I started that intensive outpatient therapy uh, where I was in group therapy with people ranging in age from 18 to 80. Wow. And... I never really would have appreciated group therapy other than I heard all those stories. And I remember, and my roommate got discharged when I did, and he and I went through outpatient therapy together. And that's cool. And so we bonded, and, and you know, I, I always had an ally there. And uh, I remember one day uh, a very young person who was mentally ill, addicted, homeless, jobless, separated from their family and he leaned over to me and said how do you overcome all that at 18 years old and he said what we're going through is nothing in comparison so i think part of the beauty of that is hearing those other stories but also realizing how very fortunate i was even within those circumstances that i had a chance and you know all those times I thought God said no to me every night, uh, I, I came to realize that he was not saying no. I think what he was saying was, you're not ready. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he placed that roommate that I needed and that walked with me through that. Um, my social worker, uh, the, we would do group therapy, and then we would do breakout sessions one-on-one. And my very first... Uh, breakout session she asked me a question that took me straight to scripture 
And it was when Jesus was with the lame man and he asked him, do you want to be well? She asked me, do you want to get better? And do you think you're going to get better? And I said, yes, ma'am, I want to get better. I just don't know how. And she said, that's okay. She said, we're going to help you. We're going to teach you that. She said, and this is one of the most powerful things that happened. She said, you are going to get better. She said, your, your condition is treatable and recoverable. And she said, and I've seen people get better from it. And she said, I see that in you. What a gift. By the time I left that month-long intensive outpatient therapy, I wrote her a poem. And in it, I likened her to that dove that Noah sent out. Yeah. That when it came back the second time, it had an olive leaf in its mouth. And I told her, I said, you, you gave me that olive leaf. I, I needed just a little bit of hope to know that out there somewhere was the tree, <laughs> the dry ground the solid ground, and that I would get better someday. And when I discharged from that, um, I I was advised to go uh, to weekly counseling for at least six months. And so I went to Agape Counseling, uh, and I, I wanted to go through Christian counseling. I thought it was essential. I needed somebody to speak the language, and I needed to speak the language and hear it. And so they assigned me to somebody that I would have never picked out of a lineup. And it was a guy that was profoundly handicapped since birth. He couldn't walk most of the time. There were occasionally times he was well enough to walk. And when he would walk out to to bring me back, he would lean on me to get back to his office. And I remember as I started going through those weekly sessions with him, I, I didn't know how to get better. But every bit of homework he gave me, I did. Every bit of reading he gave me, I did. And whether I understood it or not, I did. I worked that process because I had found out I could get better and I wanted to get better. I just needed a way. I needed to know how. And once in one of our sessions, he he said, what what do you want to talk about? I said, "I, I don't want to embarrass you, but I just have to bring this up. I said... Dude, if I were you, I said, if if I were handicapped like you are, I said, I I don't know how to get through life. I don't know how I would summon the courage to help other people. And he said, oh, it's easy. He said, I never had your ability, so I don't miss them. He said, I had to make up my mind when I was a kid that I could use my brain and my emotions and my words to help people. Wow. And boy, did he do a great job of that, what he led me through. And then he found out, you know, some more about my background. And he would ask me, do you think you're getting better? And I'd say, I do, but I don't, I don't understand how. And he would explain to me how we were taking those traumatic things from one part of my brain that was mostly emotional that put me right back in those moments. And we moved it to that log- logical part of my brain where I could reason my way through it. He taught me coping skills. He taught me how to recognize signs and symptoms. Um, and when I say coping skills, one of the things that people that suffer from depression, what we tend to do is we back ourselves in a corner and we think there's either one option or only two options. All or nothing thinking. Black All or nothing. Thinking. And that creates hopelessness. 
And one of the things he taught me to do, have a group of people that you trust that when you have a dilemma like that, that you go to them and say, hey, Matthew, this is what I've got going on. And he said, stop right there. Don't tell them what you think the options are. Ask them what what they think the options are. And he said, if you approach two or three people, you'll find at least two or three options or more that you didn't think you had. And he said, somebody might just shine a light on something you weren't even aware of. And he said, so don't get caught up in those sort of things. And so we, we just, I trusted that guy. I worked with him all the way through that. Uh, I took the medication that, that the physician prescribed for me. And, uh, I did what I did not understand. Uh, I had to because I did not have the power, the knowledge, the money, the strength, any of those things to get through this. I had to totally rely on other people. And so he was another one of those people that God placed in my path that was exactly the right place at the right time. He sent you your friend Jeff. Yeah. He sent you your roommate. Yeah. He sent you your counselor. Yeah. I noticed a trend. Yeah. Oh, no, and that's why I say, you know, where I thought there were no's, they were just, you're not ready, because I needed to do all those things in the right sequence at the right time to be receptive and to be able to heal and get better from that. So um, for most people, this is a journey. Yeah. This is maybe the acute critical moment is in the past. Right. But for most people I know, this this is a recovery that continues uh, so what does this look like? Uh, you told me this story began in 2015, and I think yeah. this is 2023. So. Yeah. Well, um, in learning, you know, what my symptoms were, because I don't know at first that I ignored things. I was probably more ignorant. So at this point, I would really have to totally ignore, you know, <laughs> and be negligent if I didn't recognize those things. There has been an occasion where I felt some of those same symptoms coming on, and so I went back to a counselor I took medication again to work through that, but but I didn't get off in the deep end this time, so to speak, right? I was still in the shallows, and so it was much easier to turn it around. It's a lot easier to get the truck out of the mud when you're three inches in than when you're six feet. Sure, and you know, uh, I had a friend one time that was a quadriplegic, and I asked her a question. I said, "Do you are you offended when, when somebody says you're handicapped? She said, oh, not at all. She said, do you know what we call people like you? And I said, oh, no. She said, we call you um, temporarily able-bodied. She said, we will all be handicapped in one way or another at some point in our life. And so I was, and I may be again. And to people that say that mental illness in a Christian is either sinful or lack of faith, I don't know, maybe. Uh, I hope they never go through it, but I think there's a lot of people that are. You know, we're we're so, you said, you said, man, everything you said has just been so good, but you talked about how, you know, there were choices that you made, sure. Sure, oh. But there are a lot of things that aren't choices that you made, and it seems like so many people just want to camp out on one or the other without recognizing that, that both things are going on. Yeah, you know? well, it, it all goes together. It contributes. You know, it, it's a it's a hard thing to say that I'm powerless. Um, it's also a hard thing 
once you start to regain some of that power through all the help from those people. And let me tell you something, in terms of my walk with the Lord, um, that, that experience drastically transformed me because I was finally in a situation where I had to 100% uh, rely on God. There was no part of me that could fix that situation. And it was through him and the people that he used as instruments throughout that process that helped me get better. And so I, I have to give God full credit and glory for that situation because I could not do it on my own. I knew I couldn't. But before that, I thought I could do everything. Greer, we, we live in that territory of believing that we can do it ourselves. Yeah. It's our favorite it's our favorite light. It's our national pastime. We pull well, ourselves up by the straps. You can until you can't. Yeah. And I think a lot of people come to that point where they can't and they don't know what to do. Um, Is this terrible? I, I wish there were a way to get us to that point without as much pain as it usually takes to get to that point. Because every story I hear, when you get to that point, it's a turnaround point. Yeah. But man, we fight against seeing that point. Yeah. You know, we... We don't want to see it. We don't want to admit it's there. Right. Um, and I don't know if that's our my pride. I don't want to say I can't do it because right. competence is one of the most things that I value most highly. You know, a man should be competent in his life. Right. Um, and for me to say I'm not competent hurts. Um, well, I, you know, I did not have the wherewithal. And, I, and I, that's when, you know, I was brought low. And I, I think that's where... As a believer, anyway, I, I have to think that I can either humble myself or God will humble me. And I, I was at a point in my life I needed to be humbled. I did a lot of things that were damaging. Um, there were relationships that were lost along the way. Um, some of those should have gone by the wayside. Yeah. But there were new relationships that came about, too, because I, I was in a place where I could not only— um, Maybe have a clearer picture of who I am. Definitely have a clearer picture of who God is. But I think it put me in a place to um, to appreciate other people in a different way. To not be so harsh. To not judge other people. Because I don't know what they're going through. You know, one of the the things my counselor told me and everybody else in our class, and she would she would stop us sometimes in our group sessions, and she would say, "There's two things you cannot do." You cannot read another person's mind and heart, and you can't predict the future. So don't tell me you know what somebody else is thinking or what they're going to do, because you can't. Stop doing that. That's God's job. But man, we fall into those traps. So oh, I know, and I, and I, you know, I gave up on some of those some of those fruitless pursuits, and honestly, things that are a waste of time and energy, and they they bring bad things in my heart, and bad things came out. And so I had to eliminate a lot of those things, but it did prepare me um, for better things. And, you know, looking back at that guy eight years ago, uh, I'm, I'm not that man now. And, um, you know, about a year and a half later, um, I met Sonia, who is now my wife. And uh, the first night we met, I, I told her my story. She asked me. And I told her my story because through that process, I made a promise to God that I would always be truthful from that point on. 
and I was convicted that sometimes the truth hurts, but it never harms. Um, and so I told her the story. I'd never met her before. And the first time we, we really got together and talked, I said, I'm going to tell you the truth. And I said, you can't unhear it. And I said, but I think you're a nice person and I'd like to get to know you better. And so I, I told her my story and, um, she sat there and I said, it's okay if it's a deal breaker. It might be for me. I don't know. She said, no, it's not a deal breaker. She said, because you told me the truth. And, and let me tell you something, Matthew. Um, Sonia loves me like Jesus does. She she never judged my past. She makes me look forward to the future. But she holds me accountable today. And she makes me want to be a better man. And so having having that come into my life, um, was more I, I I know it's way more than I deserve but it's not something I ever expected and you know through our relationship um I have two children she has two so we doubled the size of our family since then we now have a grandson who's four and a half that is our pride and joy we have another grandchild on the way and so I don't think I would have ever even asked God for those kind of blessings because there's it's a part of me even still that that I don't, I don't think I deserve it. But I guess that that's sort of the remarkable part of grace. That's the point of grace. It's a gift that um, you know, not only was I not punished like I should have been, but that I have these rewards now that that I didn't work for that I didn't deserve that I couldn't produce on my own and so in that respect um it has just been transformative and then in a more recent history um us finding the church at Burns where for the first time in a long time uh I felt like I found some kindred spirits that I was not somewhere where perfection is preached or expected because I can't do that. Yeah. I, I, just, I just can't do that. And so, you know, when I told you I wanted to tell you the story, it, it was really some elements of some things that I've talked to you about where maybe I'll be somebody's dove. Maybe I'm bringing the olive leaf to let somebody know that out there somewhere, is a tree and fruit and dry ground and a place to rest because somebody gave that to me at one point when I desperately needed it. Someone listening right now needs to hear you and me say, there is hope. Yeah. You will be better. Don't give up. No, no. But engage. Even if you don't understand the process. Matthew, I don't fully understand an internal combustion engine. But I drove one here. Yeah. And I use it every day. 
And, and I, I trust when I get in that vehicle, I trust that process that it's going to go when it should, that it's going to stop when it should, that it's going to keep me safe. And um, whether or not you understand what the process is, how long it takes, how often you might have to revisit it, that there is help out there. Let me go one step churchier on you and say there's a lot I don't understand about the Holy Spirit. Right. But I believe that he is driving us and that he is powering us and he is fueling us. And let's not be so afraid to well, hit our reliance. To, you know, to touch on that, I've I've felt an overwhelming urge to tell this story. I didn't know how and I didn't know when and I didn't know where. So by you asking me to do this, one, I think it was at the urging of the Holy Spirit. I, I know it was an answer to prayer. And it's a safe space for me to tell my story. Um, and maybe it's a safe space for somebody to hear it. You know, maybe, maybe here's the thing there. I'm not the only one. I don't know who the others are. Right. But I think there's probably somebody in a group our size that's sitting on that fence right now thinking just like me, I'm not right. You know, one of the things the psychiatrist told me with mental health, as long as you recognize you're not right, there's hope for getting better. But he told me, he said, the more you experience this and the longer you experience it, there comes a point when you cross a line that there's no coming back from. He said, there are people, when I was in that psychiatric hospital, there are people here right now with you that this is their normal. That profound mental health disease that they have right now, there is no coming back from. Wow. And that, that struck, you know, it struck a nerve and it stuck with me. And I thought, you know, I have to be vigilant. Uh, This would be no different uh, than somebody that's a diabetic, right? They, they have to be vigilant all the time because of the systemic issues that can occur you know, it's not just my blood sugar's too high. It's I have all these other things that can occur with this, and I have to be vigilant. And so I, I have found that I have to be vigilant with this. What would you say? Um, I mean, this is a platform. This is friends and neighbors at church, friends and neighbors in our community. What do you wish they could hear you say about uh, this struggle? Um, what, what's your word to them today? Well, I, you know, first and foremost, I would say, you're not alone, and you at least know that I've gone through it. And if you want to ask me, I can share my experience with you. Um, I would want them to know you can get better. Um, I would want them to know that life can be better, that you do not have to do it. on. It was never intended for you to do it all on your own, ever. And and don't try to do that. There There is a certain amount of power in being powerless. I had to surrender that. And really what I'm saying by that is I, I had to submit to the Lord again. I mean, what does he say? When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Your yeah. your grace is perfected in my weakness. I, I hope people can hear the Bible dripping out of this. Right. You know. And, um, you know, the other part of this is, too, not, not only are there are no perfect people, there are no perfect disciples. We We all have burdens. We all have. Weaknesses, we all have failures, we all have sin. Um, and 
I think you do a good job, particularly in preaching and saying, you know, <laughs> we, we want to condemn sin unless it's one of the ones we like, or or it's one of the things that I'm tempted by, or I'm drawn, you know, that that sort of thing. Um, this is just the human condition, you know. We <laughs> we all go through this, and and I would say if somebody's never gone through it, I hope they don't. But I would say there's enough life and life experience that at some point everybody probably experiences this in one way or another. Yes. To varying degrees. What do you think we can do about the stigma? Um, I, I hate the stigma of mental health stuff. I hate that it's super secretive. I hate that it's that people tend not to talk about it. You know, when my kid breaks my arm, he shows up to church in a cast and everybody says, here's a hug, here's some candy, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, but when we start talking about mental health stuff, we get squirrely. Right. Um, and I, I still don't fully understand why we do that. Right. Well, I don't know that I have a, a concise answer. I, I know and even talk with my family and friends after I went through this, folks that I encouraged to get help. You know, one of my family members even said to me, oh, I don't need a shrink. And it didn't offend me. I just said, well, you may not today, but you may one day. And I thought back to my friend taking me, and I just said, and if you need me to go, I'll go with you. Yeah, oh, that's perfect. Um, I, I think there needs to be a willingness of those that have been through this and are going through this to literally walk people through this process to give them a direction, even if it's just going with them to their primary care provider and saying, hey, my friend is in desperate need. Can can you get us a referral to see who we need to see, and, and you know help get them to help us assess how urgent the need is? Does it need to be right away? Can they wait a few weeks or two? You know whatever the case may be. But but I think um, there's not a whole lot in life, Matthew, that I can where I can legitimately tell people I know what you're going through, but this is one of them. I, I wouldn't just sympathize with them. I wouldn't just feel bad for them. I'd empathize. I, I have walked this path. I, I'll feel it with you. Yeah. And and I think just maybe that one-on-one -on -one willingness to walk somebody through the process, and if nothing else, be a sounding board. Just hear them out as they go through the process. Be an encourager. Um, I, I don't know that it's any more complicated than that. And that is... Maybe like this, having a format to just put it out there and just say to somebody, if you need my help, I'll help you. I would love to see someone at church have the courage just to say, hey, would you put me on the prayer list in the bulletin this week because I'm going through some depression right now? Yeah. I wish that weren't yeah. rare. Um, well, I you know, appreciate you having the courage to go first, so to speak, yeah. to, to do this. And Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, like I said, I think this is all... This is all coming together for a reason, um, and I, I think right now we're just instruments. Um, you know, as far as that stigma, um, <laughs> I, I've joked about this before, and I, I've never done it, and I don't know that I ever would because I wouldn't want to offend anybody, and and I certainly want want to lead anybody astray. Um, but you know, I, I wonder sometimes even you know we have those traditional. Uh, invitations that we give in our services and 
you know, I, I think even here I've talked about people sometimes having legs made out of concrete. They they want to respond, and they're, they're just statues. They're stuck in place. And I wonder how many times people think, well, I'm not good enough. I'll never be as good as somebody to my right or my left and, and that sort of thing. I've always once wanted to stand up and give an invitation like this. Um, and, and I don't know exactly how to be received, but just to say to people out there, none of us here are perfect. We never will be, and you won't be either. But we all need Jesus. Um, if I were completely honest, I would just have to say, um, I probably like the taste of bourbon more than I should. Yeah. I cuss way too much. Join the club. I get mad and I say things in anger that I have to go back and apologize to my family and my friends and my coworkers. I still question God. But I love Jesus and he loves me. And um, if you need his help, he'll help you just like he did me. And I've always just want, I just wish sometimes if we could just be a little more honest, but again, without being offensive or anything like that, I just wonder what the response would be sometimes. If maybe that resonated with somebody out there who maybe has some shared experiences and some shared doubts that it's okay. You know, it's always interesting that Thomas is called Doubting Thomas. But other passages say that none of them yeah. believed. He none gets, of them. He gets picked on, I think. Yeah. It's a bad rap. You know? Yeah. So um, I, I think sometimes the best way to show God's divinity is by being more honest about our humanity. Oh, that's so good. The best way to show God's divinity is by being more honest about our humanity. Greer, that'll breach. <laughs> Do I have to pay you for this one? No, that, no. This one was free. No. I mean, how many scriptures confess your sins one to another? He's faithful and just and forgives, you know. Uh, James 4, James 5, you know, the prayer of faith will save the sick. And there's a lot of people who say sick in that passage isn't, I have the flu. It's someone who's struggling. Mm -hmm. You know, Jude talks about have mercy on those who doubt. And my favorite prayer in scripture is that guy who says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help, help my unbelief. unbelief. Yeah. Yeah. And man, maybe we just need to pray that prayer every Sunday too. Yeah. You know, yeah. help us, help us confess, help us admit how prone to wander we are. And in that song, I never appreciated the line, um, let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Yeah. I sang that a million times growing up. Yeah. Until I started to appreciate the line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, or, or however that line goes, right. you know, pr prone to leave the God I love. Right. When I started realizing how true that second part was, it made me appreciate the first part. Let yeah. your goodness like a chain tie me to you, God. Yeah. Um, that's an image. Well, you know, I think all of us have a certain hesitancy to, to really be vulnerable and be real. Uh, I was teaching a Bible class one time, and we were studying David. 
somebody spoke up and said, I, I just don't understand with everything we know about David and all the sin he committed, how possibly can he be described as a man after God's own heart? And I pulled a Matthew Hyatt. Oh, no. And I said, well, if he can't be, I don't have a chance. The difference is all my failures haven't been printed in a book that's been read for 3,000 years. Yeah. That's the difference between, I mean, thank God they're not. But what if they were? What would what would be any different about my life and David's other than he was not ashamed to praise God? He confessed his. Yeah. He confessed it. He told the story. Well, you know, and not only that, but one of the most profound things that David ever said was, and, and over and over he talked about God's forgiveness, and, and I had to learn this. He says that God forgave the guilt of my sin, right? We try to be more powerful than God and hang on to things that he has already forgotten. I had to give up that guilt, right? I, I can't. I can't go back and change some of those things that I did. I actually, I can't go back and change any of those things. No, yeah. The past is the past. So, um, you know, should I feel guilty about it? I don't know, but I would rather tell the story and somebody else benefit from it and get well. And, and if I'm a little bit embarrassed, ashamed, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, I, I still want to be a, a man after God's own heart. I want to chase after God the way David did. And and if I'm really honest with myself, the times that I've had to wander, as soon as I turned, God was there. He was not far away. He doesn't let you get far away and make you run back. Mm -hmm. No, he's following you the whole time. Mm -hmm. And the moment you turn around, he's right behind you. Right. Waiting. Right. And that's the image. Sure. Um, Man, that's so good. This is the best sermon I've heard all day. <laughs> the day's not over yet. You've still got an opportunity. Hey, I've listened to like three actually. So yeah. I mean, that's saying something. Yeah. What would church look like if we could tell the truth? What would church look like if we were vulnerable? And you know, Jerry Barber says the point of confession, if I tell on myself, you can't tell on me. It sets me free. It humbles me. Uh, it, it just, vulnerability in church. We have to find a place and a time and all of those things to get past. Hey, how you doing? Fine, brother. How are you? We have to be able to say, I'm not okay. And we have to be the sort of people to whom there's a lot of people that, well, frankly, I'd rather lie to and say I'm fine when I'm not fine because I don't want to share it with them. Right. But I need the people in my life that can say, no, 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 you're not fine. I know you're not fine. Here's how I can tell you're not fine. So you're going to tell me why or do I have to keep badgering you? Right. What do I think it would look like? I think if if we were all that vulnerable, um, I would think the times we're together would be a lot noisier hmm. because I think there'd be far more tears and far more laughter Yeah. if we really embraced it. Um I think some of the formality would wash away. Yeah. What I, what I really think it would be, when I say noisier, think about the rare times, like where maybe you get together with all your family 
where everybody's talking, everybody's sharing. Um, it's a little boisterous sometimes, but but it's real fellowship. It's real. Yeah. Um, I, I I think that's what it would look like. You know, in the book of Acts, what's the church doing? Taking care of each other's needs. Yeah. Uh, house to house, eating, drinking, being together. Yeah. Sometimes I think we could be accused of having a sterile fellowship um, or a sanitary fellowship or something to that effect. But there is grit and there is dirt in real life stories. Yeah. You know, even if as simple as it sounds, what if we, what if we took communion the way they did that Passover feast? What if we sat on the floor, low tables, we visited, we took our time, we didn't sing, we didn't preach, we didn't, right? We just had a meal like that together. We had a meal and across that meal we told the story. Yeah. Here's what the Lord has done in me. Yeah. You know, even, I just, your story is just echoing through my head. And, you know, I think about the nights in that place where you're 32 times, 32 times. You know, I think about that. I think about the flashlight. I think about the the other voices in the room. I think about all of the things. And it just overwhelms me with a sense of gratitude how God is with us wherever we are, whether we see him or not. Um, I kind of hate that footprints in a sand poem. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's true. It's beautiful. But it's almost too cliche. Yeah. You know what you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's almost trite. But the reality of that concept, there is no place you will go that he is not there carrying you. And the only time he might not be carrying us is because we have been clawing his eyes off to not let him you know, it's like when you try to pick up the kids and they won't be put down. We are God's screaming toddlers and he is the parent who wants to carry us. Yeah. Um I don't know. Is there anything else you'd like to share, Greer? No, I, I just appreciate the opportunity to to tell the story, and um, it's not unique to me. There, there's lots of other people. In fact, there's lots of other people that have gone through far worse that didn't have the foundation that I do, that didn't have the family blessings that I've had, um, that don't have the blessings that I enjoy today. Um, but I know they're out there. I think sometimes people just, just as simple as it sounds, need to know they're not the only one. They're not the only one. But it can be helped. Things will get better. And uh, that olive leaf. Look for the olive leaf. Yeah. Would you offer a prayer for us? Would that be okay? Sure. Holy Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for my brother Matthew, that he invited and encouraged me, and Lord, ultimately, that he gave me a safe space to tell this. I pray, Father, uh, for the people that are going to hear this story, that you would encourage them, that you would strengthen them, that by your Holy Spirit they might act on what they know they need to do. I pray, Father, whether they reach out to me or they reach out to their physician or a family member or somebody they trust that they can go to somebody and say I need help and I pray father in the wake of that there will be somebody just like all those people that you placed in my path 
to walk them through this process. Father, we would be lost without you. Please, please, please help me to hold on firmer to Jesus' hand. Help me to hold on to the people around me. And help us, Father, to weather this storm. Then on the other side, there would be calm seas, that we would find peace that has eluded us for so long. And Father, help us to have hope and share hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear brother, thank you. Uh, this means more to me than you'd know. And I think, you know, from, from doing my job, I know I know some of the names of people in church that, that maybe you don't know yet. And I know you know some names I don't know. But this is something I think people needed to hear. It's something I needed to hear today. Um, and if you're listening and you, you know you need some help, uh, forgive me if this is a weird PSA or something, but let us help you find some help. There are some great counselors. There are some great physicians. There's some great support groups. Um, I know Greer would walk you to anywhere that he could. I know that I'll do it, and uh, I'll point you to whoever I can. Um, one of the great blessings in my life about a year and a half ago, I started going to Agape, and uh, Greer, I don't see the same guy you saw, uh, but uh, I go once a month every month and it's a checkup uh, yeah. i haven't been in that pit i've been in different kinds of pits i haven't sure. been in that pit but spending time once a month with my friend there yeah um i don't have to impress him i don't have to let him think i'm holy or righteous or good i don't have to try to convert him i can just tell him the truth about what's going on and a lot of months he asks some hard questions i don't like um, a lot of months he just prays over me but it's one of the best decisions uh, that I've ever made. And so forgive me if I'm tacking this on to the end of Greer's conversation, but if you if you need help and you don't know where to go, please reach out and we'll help you figure it out because the system is complicated and weird. Um, anything else, Greer? I, I just hope people can find what I found. Me too. But you know, God said, one time in the book of Acts, that he made the world and lined up all the nations in the hopes that men would search for him, grope for him, and find him. And then it's like Acts kind of leans in and smiles and lets you in on the secret. He's not far from any of us. Oh, no. uh, I love that line. Well, friends, thank you so much for listening today to the Rough Drafts podcast. Uh, it's been another fun week, and I can't wait to see what God's up to in your story next week. Thanks for listening to Rough Drafts. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, help us spread the word by leaving a rating and review. Until next time, let's keep looking for how God writes his love into our stories. <laughs>